Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I want to do a radio reader today, so those of you who are not fond of when I read you things, <laughs> um, I understand if you don't want to listen to this one. At the same time, I kind of wish that you might consider it if you are interested in plants for your bees. There's something about beekeeping that you might not expect and that is as you become more of a beekeeper you will become much more of a plant and tree person in that you become very aware of what is going on in your area in terms of bloom and when things bloom your bees could be getting pollen or nectar or both and it becomes a real fascination and you begin to see that correlation between what is going on in the plants and the trees and what is going on in your hives and quickly after a few years you see those two are completely tied. I ran into this same thing talking to an avid fly fisher. Uh, she was telling me all about um, some flies she was tying and showing me how to look at them um, as if you were looking up at them because that's what the trout sees and I found this fascinating and she was so knowledgeable about bugs and she made the comment that it's funny how you you get into fishing and then it turns out you begin to learn everything you need to learn or you try to learn everything you need to learn about the the bugs that the trout eat because that's going to tell you what you need to fish with when and how so that was fascinating I said well that's interesting because the same thing is true of bees as you get into bees you find out that you need to know what grows in your area what blooms when um, whether the bees are going to get the pollen to feed brood from it or whether they're going to get the nectar to also feed brood but also themselves and to store honey so the more you know about your particular ecosystem in terms of trees and plants the better beekeeper you're going to be so the reading I want to do to you for you <laughs> today is um, honeybee biology and beekeeping this is a selection from honeybee biology and beekeeping by Dewey Karen with Lawrence John Connor you'll probably recognize both those names from a lot of bee books you've read Dewey Karen C-A-R-O-N this book like many other great bee books is published by Wickwas Press out of Kalamazoo, Michigan. And so if you want to go on www.wickwas.com, that's W-I-C-W-A-S.com, you will find a bunch of good books to read. So this is from Chapter 10, and it's the subtitle is Honey Plants of June and July. Um, after I get finished with this I'll go back through and just uh, kind of talk through how some of this applies and doesn't apply to my area and as usual I may have to do this in two parts but we'll see how this goes honey plants of June and July in the high lime soil areas of the mid-Atlantic states June blooming thistles are extremely valuable for nectar surpluses Canada bull and musk thistle are undesirable weeds as they interfere with land use mainly because of their sharp spines. The purple flowers, however, are highly attractive to honeybees and produce a water-white honey. 
Researchers are using biological control methods of thistle attacking beetles to try and slow the rate of spread of several thistle species, which are serious pasture pests that spread very rapidly. Blueweed or viper's bugloss is not a pest. Let me apologize here if I butcher any of these plant names. It thrives on high lime soil and produces a very light honey of excellent quality. One or two supers of sur surplus are usually possible each season. Clover flowers thrive on similar soil and a viper's bugloss flow may phase into a sweet clover flow resulting in abundant light color honey surpluses. Depending on the area, another locally abundant June blooming plant may provide a nectar flow. Along coastal areas, lower river and marsh areas, native hollies can be a good nectar source. Holly is also a widely planted ornamental, but usually there are too few plants to yield a crop and drier soils may adversely affect nectar yield. Gallberry, which is a kind of holly, consistently provides a super amour of surplus honey along the Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico coastal plain areas. The honey is light amber with a very pleasant aftertaste. The beekeeper of the southeast like gallberry as a chunk honey source because it's very slow to crystallize. Let me pause here and say please write and tell me what are your big honey sources um, and write it in a way that I can just read it on a podcast and I'll read it and let people know what kind of nectar goings on you have in your neighborhood. Okay, back to the text. Further inland, several sumacs are good nectar sources, although, like holly, the honey may not be very pleasant tasting. Staghorn and smooth-barked sumac seem to be the best for nectar secretion. Sumac may overgrow briars like blackberry in fields being abandoned to forest and result in localized areas of good nectar flow for several years. The last of the early summer nectar sources is basswood or linden. The cream-colored linden flowers extend from beneath the leaves and bees forage upside down to obtain the abundant nectar. Basswood yields a very light-flavored honey. Many people describe the taste as minty. For a light honey, it is quite distinctive even after storage. Basswood trees bloom in late June or early July. Even weak spring colonies have time to expand and can usually store basswood honey if there's a concentration of trees in an area. The little leaf linden is being utilized as an ornamental tree in suburban and urban plantings. It's also a good source for bees if soil conditions are not too dry. Another species common in the southern Allegheny forests and the southern Appalachians, I will add, especially above 2,500 feet, is sourwood. The white blossoms are freely visited by foragers in late June and early July when other bees are foraging basswoods at lower elevation. Beekeepers do not secure a surplus crop every season from for sourwood for unknown reasons. The honey is one of the finest available in the U.S. It contains a delicate balance of sweet and sour. Pure sourwood is nearly water white, but most colonies store honey from several plant species, and sourwood honey offered for sale may range from light to dark in color. It's often sold as chunk honey. Two supers of surplus honey per colony are common in the normal season. So I'll talk you through some of the things in this section um, based on our area here in the uh, Blue Ridge and the Southern Appalachians. When they talk about high lime soil areas, and there's quite a few great honey plants that need high lime soil and kind of drier conditions. And here in the Southern Appalachians, we have 
very acidic soil and high rain conditions and so we get a really different mix of um, flowering plants than a lot they talk about here one of the ones that they talk about hollies and I've come to really love um, hollies as an ornamental planting not because they have berries for bird they provide evergreen cover for bird nests and your songbird nests and that type of thing and then um, also the icing on the cake sorry about that ding let me turn that other phone off um, the icing on the cake is they provide nectar and pollen for the bees now I didn't know that it produced a not so good tasting honey but like any plant in your surroundings wherever your hives are or wherever that particular yard is remember that the bees are foraging in a big circle like maybe up to three miles out in that whole area it's I think more commonly about one mile out but even then you're talking about thousands of acres so when beekeepers have a hive and they're like what can I plant for my bees I mean your bees will relish anything you plant for them but also keep in mind that anything most of us are able to plant is not going to make a huge difference because they are foraging in such a wide area. They talk about um, briars like blackberry and um, we have a lot of that in the spring, really late spring, um, where people have cut down forests, unfortunately, um, a landowner across the hollow from us well it was sad the landowner died and the heirs promptly had the land clear-cut it was really ghastly and you could see it from the Blue Ridge Parkway big uh, big clear-cut was really awful it was I, I, I just hated the way they did it too because I mean they took everything you could see the red dirt on the mountainside it was terrible I worried it would wash away but um, the brambles blackberry uh, and grew up a lot of brambles and so I I was like well okay if you're gonna have a clear cut at least the bees are gonna have a good time for a while until the forest begins to to grow back I just hate it when people clear cut because it really messes with the uh, the ecosystem of the forest and so many people do it better now you know they go in and selectively log of course you don't want to selectively log all the best trees because then the trees left to reproduce are the you know not so good trees but there are some good logging operations but this was not one of them and it was very sad because you had the feeling that the owner who died probably didn't want to do that to their land or they would have done it and but the heirs wasted no time in clear cutting it so sorry okay off my soapbox on that but um, next they talk about the basswood and basswood is so interesting to me it does we have a lot of it here in our area though I don't have a lot in my particular valley one of my mentors who's pretty much exactly where I am just one mountain range over I mean it is a big mountain range it's the black mountain range which is the tallest in the east but on that other side of the mountain he has a ton of basswood gets a lot of basswood honey it is quite minty uh, people either like it or they don't because it's very distinctly minty and um but i don't get much here and um it just varies i mean one they don't really mention in here and maybe they maybe it's probably in the earlier section is locust which is again kind of late spring um and i wish i had more because to me locust is the most we call it the champagne honey that's what we call it here at home because it's just to just lovely light bright 
um, flavor. And so it really is dependent on what is in your area. This is yet another uh, good reason to go into your hives fairly often because you can see if you've got lighter comb you can tell the color of the nectar they're bringing in. Um, here in my particular valley uh, tulip poplar is one of my big flows which strangely enough totally did not happen this year. There was I don't see a speck of tulip poplar in my supers which is very strange that's usually my heaviest flow there were some flowers, but I don't know if the weather wasn't right or the rain wasn't right or there was too much or too little. I understand the tulip poplar have a new pest, which may have been challenging them. Tulip poplar also have the flowers that face upward, and um, if they're sensitive to rain, they can get rained out because the flowers catch the rain if it rains on them. Whereas this next one that they talk about after basswood, uh, he talks about the sourwood, and that is, for the, for the southern Appalachians at least, that's our Tupelo honey right there. That's our special, unique honey is sourwood. It is a quite delicious honey. It's, it's actually not my personal favorite, but people go crazy over it. They will pay a premium for it. And there was one detail in here that I thought was interesting. Um, they talk about that pure sourwood is nearly water white which is one of the classifications of honey. But I have a detail there that I happen to know that I'd love to share with you. Uh, one mountain range over in the other direction toward McDowell County, which is quite a bit lower. They have a lot of sourwood and um, in areas, in some areas. And so their club added a component to their honey tasting that I thought was great. The winners or the top, I don't know, five or so winners at least, they send them off to get pollen tested to find out um, what what nectars are in that prize winning honey. So they, in their summer competition, which was virtually all sourwood, they sent off the winners. And the interesting thing was they posted some photos and the color of these honeys ranged from water white to quite dark. And so they were very curious to see what this was. Well, they all came back as predominantly sourwood. So the beekeepers could label that jar as a sourwood honey. But the colors were radically different. And um, the one of the people in the bee club did some more research from, I think it might have been David Tarpey, but I could be making that up. Um, but anyway, it turns out that sourwood, the color of the honey, depends on the type of soil that is under that tree. So that affects the color of the nectar. So you can have a true sourwood honey and it can range from extremely light to quite dark. I thought that was a neat thing. And I also think that's a great thing to add to honey competitions because if you have a honey that's selected as being the best, it is interesting to find out what exactly, what flavors are in there um, mixing it up. So that's, uh, I wish I had more basswood. And um, on the, they, they mentioned the, Little Leaf Linden, um, both of the, they're both Tilia species, uh, T-I-L-I-A, I hope that's how you say it. Um, but the Little Leaf Linden is a European tree to the best of my knowledge, and I actually have a couple that I've planted just for fun, and they're not really big enough to bloom yet, but I like to see what happens. The basswood, I will say, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, there was an enormous, I mean giant, basswood tree. They have the big dark green kind of heart 
shaped leaves. And I had no idea that. I mean, they can become a huge tree. But there's one in front of the Veterans Administration Hospital in Fayetteville. And I was there uh, waiting on my spouse one time. And um, I was I went out to look at this tree because I was like, wow, that's a striking tree. And I went out to see it. I didn't even know what kind it was at the time. And I could hear buzzing. Like I was, I was still 10 yards away from the tree and I could hear buzzing. And I stood under it and the thing was absolutely vibrating with bees. So this huge tree with bees everywhere, well actually all kinds of pollinators uh, getting the nectar. Um, they're little bell, tiny bell-shaped flowers and they hang upside down which is kind of handy because I guess they don't get rained out like uh, tulip poplar uh, can. And I don't think basswood blooms very long. But when people talk about a pollinator garden and they're like, oh, I'm going to plant this little flower and this little flower, I'm like, wow, okay, that's great, and do that. But by all means, go plant some of these trees. Because you think about it, that basswood tree, it might not bloom long, but it was that enormous tree covered in flowers that blooms most every year with absolutely no care from the, um, from the owners, or in this case, the the VA <laughs> and um, but yet it feeds pollinators probably longer than I'll live and I'll longer than I'll maintain my my little tiny flower garden so please consider looking up what are some of the best shrubs and trees because you need both in your yard you know for a good garden design for bees and pollinators and it's neat to you know the different ones attract different pollinators anyway this is my other than bees um, Trees and shrubs for pollinators is my other passion in life, so I'll talk more about that. But back to the text. So now we're in the clover, vetch, and alfalfa section. And um, clover's interesting because, again, they talk about a lot of clovers that grow on the alkaline soil, and I have the opposite, the very acidic. So a lot of these I don't know, um, but we do have a lot of the white Dutch clover. And it really, I consider them a signal plant in my yard. I plant a ton in my yard and around the pond. Because when I see the bees on the white clover, just the Dutch yard clover, I consider that a signal that there's not a ton blooming out there in the forest because they only get on my clover when there's not a lot going on. And they will abandon the clover when something better is going on out there. So that it's a signal plant for me. Alright, back to the text. Clovers, vetch, and alfalfa. The earliest of the clovers is white clover or white Dutch clover. It is common on lawns, roadsides, and as a waste area plant on drier soils east of the Mississippi River. Provided there is sufficient soil moisture, white clover is capable of secreting a tremendous amount of nectar. Yields in excess of 100 pounds have been recorded. White clover honey is light and delicate. It makes beautiful section or cut comb honey. Ladino clover, a larger flowered variety of white clover, does well for grower and beekeeper in irrigated agricultural areas of the west. On some soils, alsic, it's A-L-S-I-K-E clover, is a better nectar secretor. Alsic tolerates wet clay soils better than other clovers. The flower size is intermediate between white and red clover heads. It has a pinkish tinge of color. Growers in northern states of the eastern Canadian provinces planted large acreages of alsic as hay or pasture cover crop a few years ago, but it is less planted today. Crimson clover is a popular cover crop plant in southern states. 
and uh, very beautiful, I might add, crimson clover. Overlapping with Dutch white clover is yellow sweet clover. It blooms 10 days to 2 weeks before white sweet clover. Combined, the sweet clovers are the best honey plants in the United States, particularly in the western U.S. Sweet clover grows on a variety of soil, but does especially well on alkaline soils in a dry climate. So no luck for me there. <laughs> Both are excellent plants to help worn out soils recover and are very vigorous in growth habitats, suppressing other weed species. Sweet clover honey is one of the finest golden yellow honeys available. Some consumers do not appreciate the peppery aftertaste. It granulates quickly, necessitating the need to process with heat and filtering in an effort to slow granulation of the shelf pack. Unfortunately, sweet clover is no longer widely planted, having been replaced by alfalfa in many areas. There's been some selection of sweet clovers and there's a good bee and there are good bee varieties such as hubam. That's H-U-B-A-M, clover, available for commercial planting. It's interesting to note that beekeepers once scattered sweet clover seed wherever they went, which was later followed by an effort to eliminate the, quote, dangerous weed. Beekeepers were blamed for its spread, whether they helped or not. Red clover is an exception among the clovers in that honeybees are not able to reach the nectar in the deep red clover flower corollas. I'll say um, the bumblebees do really well on that, so keep planting red clover for the bumblebees. Honeybees will forage red clover for pollen and in late summer when other sources are not available the foragers do collect some nectar. It's a tongue length issue there. <laughs> Alright so hairy vetch and purple vetch are not as widespread as they once were. They're excellent nectar sources for bees. They grow on poor soils and are helpful to hold banks and slopes where other plants grow poorly. Vetch is water white. Vetch honey is water white with an excellent taste. One vetch that is not useful to bees is crown vetch. And I want to say, I was just devastated when I saw this because they've planted crown vetch all along the highway, Highway 19, close to where I am. And when I see it bloom, I'm like, oh, look at all those flowers blooming for the bees. And then I read this and I was totally bummed because crown vetch flowers are nectarless and bees do not readily visit them for pollen. Unfortunately, it was widely planted along roadsides in the mid-Atlantic states for erosion control and to reduce mowing. Further north, bird's foot trefoil or trefoil, T-R-E-F-O-I-L, another legume is the preferred roadside plant. Trefoil has abundant yellow bloom from June to August and yields the typical light-colored legume honey. The last of the legumes to consider alfalfa. It's now the preferred cultivated hay or pasture legume crop for soil building. It has replaced large acreages formerly planted to clover. Alfalfa, however, should be cut just before bloom for highest protein content. Most alfalfa fields do not bloom until the last cutting when farmers fall behind on their chores, <laughs> I like that bit of truth, or they allow some of the bloom in an attempt to secure reseeding of fields. Beekeepers need to super colonies to obtain surplus honey, clover honey for harvest. Some attempt to super just at the beginning of the bloom of clover, while others begin to super as colonies expand in late spring. Beekeepers in tulip, poplar, or thistle areas must super earlier, of course. Once colonies start storing nectars and supers, beekeepers must ensure there's enough empty super space for bees to store nectar. Few beekeepers continue brewing 
brood examination of supered colonies since there's a great deal of work involved in removing and restacking supers above brood. When there's a great amount of nectar available to the bees, fully expanded colonies should be over-supered. The bees need the room because nectar is spread out to aid evaporation. As the nectar ripens, hive bees consolidate the stores. As the major bloom passes, undersupering forces bees to consolidate their stores. So let me go back on this because there's a lot of interesting things in here. In you know some things that uh, I find to be true and some not. For example, they say that few beekeepers continue brood examination of supered colonies since there's a great deal of work involved. And yes, there is a great deal of work involved. But so much of that depends on, you know, when your particular flow is, um, what kind of supers are on there. For example, this is, we're, uh, this is July 8th, and here in the Southern Appalachians, we are just starting um, a good, uh, up in the highlands where I am, the sourwood flow is on. So I am adding supers, trying to capture that sourwood, and... Um, I do still have to inspect because as you also know this is the height of this is kind of in most well I don't know about your spot but at least in our area this is the height of mite season in that the mite population is peaking and now that we're past the solstice the bee population even though it doesn't look that way because the hives are so packed and they're often hanging out on the porch because it's hot the bee population is about to start going downward and this is that terrible crossing point on the diagram where the mites are at their highest, the bees are at their lowest population, you can really start to see some mite damage. I said in an earlier podcast that um, you know these summer splits are really great if you can do that if you're set up and prepared and, and understand the concept. New beginners, I'm not talking about a first year hive, highly unlikely that I'm Especially if you started out with a package on foundation, disregard this because your hive is not, it, it's it's probably not big enough to split even in the summer. Because of course, any hive you split, you've got to either recombine them, which is a possibility, with the new young queen if she's a good one. Um, or you have, if you split into pieces, you've got each piece, whether it's two or more, you've got to be able to build them up to winter size. Now there's a lot to say about that because it depends on the size you're overwintering, it depends on how much drawn comb you have, it depends on how much you're willing to feed and baby and all that. Um, so I won't go into that here. But the part I will go into, so anyway, that whole, oh, you don't look at the brood when there's supers on, that's not always true. And the other thing, now on a commercial level, obviously they don't take all those heavy uh, brood, uh, supers off to look at the brood chambers and commercial beekeepers tend to have it so down pat that they know exactly when their flow is going to happen. That way they can go out there, put tons of supers on, which is called over, what he's calling over supering. And in this usage, he's not talking about where the supers are, but he's talking about how many. Um, so you over super, you give them lots of supers, so that they don't, they, so that there's no bottleneck in them having plenty of space. Now, new beekeepers, you're like, well, where do I get these supers? If you put foundation on, that's not the same because they're going to have to build out the comb. This is where we get back to that that the drawn comb is your treasure 
and you want to protect it. So for example, about now, if you're starting to have a weak colony for whatever reason, you want to consolidate that colony in f fewer boxes so they can protect their space. And actually a listener wrote recently and said, talk about small hive beetle. And I don't have as much small, I have very little uh, small hive beetle problems here at the moment. It's getting warmer, so that's probably coming. But um, back in Arkansas, the, the small hive beetle were a big pain. And um, the, the thing about small hive beetle, and this is one of the reasons why I started keeping what some consider kind of really tightly packed uh, boxes in terms of bees. I like to see a big population. I like I like to walk that fine line between them being full and over full. Now obviously there's risks involved in that um, but if you're very attentive to your bees that is a really sweet spot to be because if that hive is really full of uh, bees not overfull, <laughs> but full where they they can where a bunch of bees can patrol every square inch of that hive um, they're just not going to have trouble with small hive beetle. They can handle it. It's it's when a weak hive, um, or worse, a weak hive with too much space. Because if they have a lot of space, they can't patrol every corner of that hive. And so what happens is both small hive beetle and wax moth, they get in there, they establish themselves, and once they get established, that little weak colony can't take care of the problem. But if you have a booming colony and they patrol every inch of their boxes, you're not going to have either of those problems, um, at least in my experience. Now, down south with small hive beetle, that you may have to consult someone down south because that is really, um, they can be quite ravenous uh, down there. But at least in my experience in the mid-Atlantic state, if you keep your population sized to the amount of boxes that you have on that hive, those are two things you just won't have problems with. Um, and if you do, that's a signal that either your colony is really weak or your colony has too much room because they're not able to keep those pests um, under control. Now back to what he's talking about, over-supering and under-supering. I found this confusing, especially coming right on the heels of the, the they were talking about inspecting the brood nest under supers because there's a technique called undersupering. I think it comes from the Warre hive uh, tradition, but um, I'm not sure about that. But but anyway, undersupering. For example, let's say I go out. I have a hive of four boxes tall. Now I use eight frame mediums, so they're all just boxes to me. But I look in there, and the two top boxes are packed with honey, nectar, and even capped honey. And then the brood nest I'm finding is crammed down in the bottom two. And maybe I've waited a little bit late. <laughs> Not me. Oh, yes. Okay, so maybe I've waited a bit late, and they're really packed. And the sign that I've waited a little, little bit late is when I inspect that brood nest, yes, after I've lifted those heavy boxes off, because I'm not a commercial beekeeper, and I, I look in there, see what's going on. I look at that brood nest, and where the capped brood are emerging, you know, so there's empty cells, I start seeing that the worker bees have started packing those with nectar. And I can tell because it's like, you know, you'll have mostly cat brood and then there's some have already come out, there's empty cells, and they're shiny. They're full of nectar. This is a big signal I've learned to watch for because that's called backfilling the brood nest. And that is part of their pre-swarm preparation. So what they do is the, the queen, there she is in the brood nest, 
and they've gotten two packed out like the honey supers are full brood nest is full it begins you begin to get the push uh, crowding is one of the swarm urges and actually crowding can cause them to swarm at the wrong time too because we're getting late in the season for swarms and you know a wild swarm at this time in my area you know that saying oh I can't remember the first part of it but uh, swarm in June's worth of silver spoon but swarm in July is not worth a fly there's something a saying like that and while it's not literally um, always true it is in the sense that if a if they swarm to a wild place in July they have a very low chance of success I mean they have a low chance already so um, now if you catch that swarm or prevent that swarm by doing an artificial swarm for they say you can help them because if you give them a drawn comb they're gonna do fine um, so you know, if I caught a swarm now, now, uh, I, I don't like really to catch swarms this time of the year because they're usually carrying a big old mite load compared to swarms other the times of the year. But anyway, that backfilling of the brood nest, that is an important thing to learn to look for. When you start seeing those little sparkling cells in your brood nest, what they're doing is they're blocking those cells so the queen can't lay in them. So, and they begin to slim the queen down so they kind of reduce her laying they put her on a diet and exercise plan because they're getting her ready to fly so if I go in there and I see that backfilling of the brood nest has begun I use the under supering technique and I'm using it not in the sense that they did in this textbook but in the sense of where you put the box so when you think of supering I think super literally means above and you're, so you're going to give them extra room, you put the top box on top. But the problem is, is if the honey area that they have in there, if it is packed to the brim, and if it is capped, then that's what they're sensing above the brood nest. And remember I've said the area of stores right above the brood nest is a very important area because that's where they seem to do their reading. They take their reading on how they're doing. And if that area above the brood nest has a lot of empty comb, they're like, oh my gosh, our pantry is not full. Forget about swarming. We've got to fill this pantry. However, if that area above the brood nest is an absolute wall of honey, then they take that as, hey, we've done our job. Let's think about swarming. So one of the tricks that I find very handy is under supering. Um, so that means taking my box, ideally of drawn comb, if I'm really trying to get honey, uh, if honey's not the real, if honey's not the primary thing and I want to draw some new comb, it's a great time to take the super that you're about to add. Let's say it's all drawn comb and um, every other one put in foundation. And that way they're going to draw that because again, because that's foundation with 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 comb on either side of it right above the brood nest that will get drawn quite quickly if they have enough of a flow to draw it which is when you run into this problem that I'm talking about um, so checkerboarding of the drawn comb um, can be very useful checkerboarding is also useful let's say you've got one box that's on top that's packed out with honey and you want to add some more space again if you add it on top they may not even realize it especially if it's foundation they don't even read foundation as storage space and so that's what you got to be careful with so new beekeepers checkerboarding the the filled or filling frames with empty foundation 
uh, does a lot of things. It gets your foundation drawn and because that foundation is in between um, drawn comb, then they they read it as hey we need to put comb on that and when I I'm, when I'm saying drawn foundation it's whether you're using wax foundation plastic foundation or no foundation just an empty frame um, then any of those that's what I'm talking about is just blank to the bees blank space and if you put the blank space in between um, drawn comb they will draw it out much much faster than just a box of foundation um, so this under supering that I keep trying to talk about um, what I might do there is I take my box that I'm going to use as a super maybe it's partial foundation partial drawn comb I take off the loaded honey supers set them aside and in a save your back technique you know set an empty box on the ground so that you're not setting that hunt that heavy honey super all the way on the ground then stack those up and then put your new empty super right on top of the brood nest then stack your supers back on and what that does is it kind of resets them and they're like oh my goodness we've got empty space and it gets them back to nectar collecting and honey storage as opposed to considering swarming so under supering in that technique uh, is very handy and in this book when he talks about under supering I found that very confusing because he's talking about consolidating the frames anyway I don't think you should worry about that but um so I'm gonna stop here as usual I drifted way off of what I read you <laughs> but people like Phil who don't like me to um, read a lot then maybe that made it better but I am gonna continue reading sections of this chapter 10 just so you can get a taste for this textbook I think it's a really good beginner book the majority of the book is of course about bees um, I just happen to pick the plant um, section because that's I'm starting to study for the um, journeyman test that I've had to put off taking earlier this year but I'm gonna take it in early August so I'm kinda trying to get my head wrapped around doing some studying I feel very comfortable in terms of the actual beekeeping but a lot of the um, you know factual stuff I, I could be right on or I could easily not know the answer to that so um, I am trying to study so hope you've enjoyed this little talk about plants I would challenge you to start getting to know the bloom schedule in your area oh I'm running over but I gotta tell you this story one of these things I came across that I was given one time it was a spreadsheet and it was a spreadsheet that this couple I believe they were in Connecticut had kept for I don't know 20 years on their farm every week this husband and wife would go out walking on their farm and they would make a note of what the bees were on and they put it in a spreadsheet and so after all those years they could pretty much correlate you know what given whatever week of the year you were in what was likely to be blooming on their farm and I thought that was fascinating and and if it's things that are blooming in the region you can get a real idea so in late summer or kind of I don't know what is this high summer I guess late summer fall start really watching what are your bees on because we're getting into the critical food collection time where they're also putting up um, the critical honey for the winter and the more aware you can be of what is blooming in your area and the timing of that 
Uh, I, I sometimes take take an old weekly planner, the kind that has a, you know, you open it up and the spread is one week. And just without paying attention to the um, numbers on there, it, it can be an old one from another year, but just, you know, the first week of July, second week of July, third week of July, make little notes on what you see the bees on. It's a great way to get you out, make you take a walk, and pay attention to what your bees are doing. So I'll leave you with that. Thanks for sticking with me this long one, and I will be back with a uh, non-reading podcast soon. Take care. Enjoy your bees.